Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. And I'm Sahar Khan, a visiting research fellow here at Cato. Today, we're going to focus on a topic that preoccupies many foreign policy analysts these days, and one that pops up all the time in our conversations on power problems, but that we haven't so far ever focused on explicitly, and that is the topic of leadership or statesmanship. Does history make statesmen, or do statesmen make history? We are very fortunate today to have with us a man who has just written a fantastic book on this very topic. The book is called Peacemakers, Leadership Lessons from 20th Century Statesmanship, and the author is Bruce Gentleson, professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Bruce, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Let's start with some news. Uh, boy, oh boy, all sorts of stuff going on out there. Uh, let's start with uh, something that is not North Korea. Let's talk about trade. Um, the trade. The Trump administration has um, managed to pick fights uh, on trade with any number of countries at this point. I, I'm thinking at the moment about China, um, just as the U.S. advance team uh, landed in Beijing to go talk about trade. The United States moved ahead with tariffs against China, raising questions about whether these negotiations are ever going to get off the ground. W- what's going on? Well, you know, this whole notion of, of Donald Trump may not know much about the world, but he knows how to make a deal. Uh, is kind of being blown out of the water on the trade issue, let alone other stuff that may follow. Um, the Chinese are being very shrewd. Uh, they're saying, sure, we'll match you dollar for dollar. We'll give you some concessions. Uh, but of course, the real issue with China are things like intellectual property, opening markets, uh, the role of the state in um, international trade. And you know they're, they're not touching that. And um, Trump so far seems to be a combination of falling for it uh, and having his team on yet another issue fight with each other. Yeah, I, I've, you know, Trump zigzags so quickly on trade issues. I can't tell if it's because his team, you know, really has two minds, which seems true, or whether Trump just wakes up and day to day has a different feeling about what's the next right thing to do. Whether he, it seems like he's, you know, cutting a, a special deal with this Chinese telecom company for reasons that seem totally not obvious to me. Why that would be a good idea, um, and you know, why in the middle of trying to get. North Korea figured out he's choosing to alienate one of the most important regional partners on anything to do with North Korea. Yeah, and even politically, you know, it it seems to be he he loves the big event, right? The parade, the military parade, supposedly can happen in November, and so in a couple of towns that are getting the benefits of this from their steel factories, there's been big events, you know, barbecues and everything, thanking him. But the reality is that even as in a domestic political thing, the costs to other – to the steel users, uh, to the exporters of many of the products that are being, uh, you know, barriers raised against them, you know, actually the, the, the negative politically outweighs the positive even for Trump. But of course, he doesn't see that because he just likes the really big stuff. Yeah. For Trump, the optics trump yeah, optics the are. reality. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's hit another uh, interesting and bizarre topic, and that would be Italy, um, headed for yet another election after the the president blocked the two populist parties from forming a government uh, because he thought it was going to lead to Italy dumping the euro. And, you know, with Brexit, obviously, and the weakening of uh, political institutions in Poland and Hungary, surging populism in Austria and other places, uh, this debate about 
you know, whether Italy dumps the euro and, and the rise of populism in Italy is scary. Is the EU in big trouble here? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because there was this deep breath when Macron won in France and Le Pen did not. And, oh, we're going back another trend. What's fascinating is if you think about what's going on across, frankly, all advanced industrial societies, all of Europe, Canada may be an exception, but the United States, you know, the particular manifestation differs. But there are three things that are characteristic. So one is this sense of economic dislocation. And it's feeding the left as well as the right. You know, Podemos in Spain and Syriza uh, in Greece, as well as the right in Italy and, and in some ways the right that produced the Brexit vote. Uh, here, some of the Bernie Sanders voters in the Democratic primaries voted for Trump, right? So the sense of economic dislocation is, is, is systemic. It's not just a matter of fluctuations. Secondly, it's combined with a real cultural anxiety, right? We are going to be a majority-minority country in the United States within a few decades. Uh, in Britain, Brexit was very much about that and not the Syrian refugees, but it was really more about the legacies of colonialism. Uh, in Italy and other parts of the continent, it is about the Syrian refugees, Austria. Uh, but there's this real cultural – and I always feel like anxiety is the best way to describe it because people are frightened – about what they think is happening to what they believe to be their identity and the truth. And the third factor is to throw in, um, you know, uh, homeland security and terrorism hitting countries. And this is kind of a, you know, a witch's brew, if you will, that's manifesting itself even in the nice social democracies of Scandinavia. In Denmark, the second largest party is the non-immigrant party. So Italy is the latest version of this. You know, Austria is happening. Uh, and it's not going to go away with one election or another. It would have been there even if Brexit lost, even if Trump had lost. And it's something we really need to think about because it's the cumulative effect of a whole variety of trends over the last couple of decades. I completely agree with you. And I think in, especially with regards to Turkey, um, Italy's uh, re-election, um, there's no guarantee that these voters are not going to vote in the same coalition that they did in March. So to have a re-election just seems a little odd to me. But when you consider Italy's history of, of governments, they've had 65 governments in the past 70 years. It doesn't seem, I suppose, that odd. But I think what's more troubling when we think about the EU is the rise of anti-immigration and anti-immigration that doesn't match the number at all. There's this idea that immigrants are taking over, but when you actually use empirical information, you realize that's not the case. And oftentimes, especially in Italy, a lot of the crime has decreased. Most of the crime that is committed is done by Italians sort of who have grown up there, not um, immigrants who have come for various political reasons. Um, and so I think that he, um, you know, the, the rise has been... Um, detrimental to, to EU. And I think it also shows EU's failure, right? What what can EU do to save itself? Um, there's no message out there. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. You know, I, I remember I was um, living in the UK about, actually about 10 years ago now. I was at Oxford for six months and people would then talk about the so-called Polish plumber, which is very much your point. This is, this is not about you know, uh, the West Indies or about South Asia. But it was this notion that the Polish plumber because of the EU is coming and taking our job at lower wages. And and that had been, again, that goes back to 2007, 2008, not just to the events of now. And so how to deal with these issues, whether it's for the EU uh, or for the kind of governments that many of these countries need for their own progress, is a deep issue. And it's not going to be changed by, even if the election went in the other direction, you know, that's just that's just sort of the cyclical moving of the pendulum. And, you know, it runs much deeper and it's going to take much more than that in terms of policy. Well, I sort of think about it too from the other direction. <clears throat> the, you know, the EU shows how hard it is to make a single policy 
that can somehow flexibly and effectively cover so many different countries with so many different things going on. It, there's clearly better and worse parts of, of, the, of the project. But the way I think of it is imagine the United States was in pieces and parts and you had to try to uh, get an agreement to do a United States. At this point, I just don't think so. How would anyone agree to do that? This is a really hard thing to get agreement on when people are unhappy. And yeah. so, you know, will it break up? It seems hard to predict, but it's, it ain't happy. That's, that's for sure. sure. Yeah. Okay. Last news bit is sort of news that isn't in the news that often, um, and that's Syria here in the U.S. Um, the Assad regime just declared that Damascus and its suburbs had been, you know, air quotes here, liberated from the terrorists uh, and are now fully under regime control. So, you know, it really finally, surely doesn't look like Assad is going anywhere. Uh, but Syria is still a gosh darn mess. Um, what, you see anything in the tea leaves here? You know, I, I think it stays a mess for a long time, and and I, I think the notion that Assad has gained uh, control of territory, uh, some of the opposition forces have been militarily defeated, but many are going to shift tactics, right? So there's going to be terrorism and other methods, uh, uh, other strategies. You know, and frankly, for Putin and the Russians, you know, it was one thing to go in and try to make sure that the United States somehow didn't get in and try to stabilize. Not that we necessarily would succeeded, Syria. Um, but now, you know, he might have on his hands not just uh, ensuring somebody else doesn't stabilize, but how does he how how does he stabilize Assad on a continuing basis? How does this not become his, you know, Afghanistan? And so there's a lot of choices out there, as well as the concern about you know ratcheting up of the Israeli-Iranian confrontation, Israeli-Hezbollah, which could really spark you know a regional war. So Assad is strutting the world stage and a little bit more confidence. Um, I think if we met three, six months from now, we would be saying, geez, that stability Assad thought he had uh, sure isn't there, you know, and maybe for different reasons than it was six months before. But when you have a country which, what, 50 percent of the population is either forced out or internally uh, dislocated, the economy destroyed, um, the notion that anybody could stabilize this in the short term, not going to happen. I agree completely. And I think what we're actually going to see now is also a clash between Iran and Russia. I mean, for now, they've been sort of aligned, you know, helping Assad for a variety of reasons. But now as Assad, as you mentioned, has more territory, is strutting around the world, more confident, um, I think he will find himself balancing um, his interests with those of Russia and Iran. Um, Russia, for the most part, has tried to have a good relationship with Israel. Um, Iran, of course, has not. Um, and I think Assad is going to find himself between a rock and a hard place. And then when you combine it also with now all this rhetoric of refugees should go back, um, it's unclear what they're going back to. I mean, their cities are completely destroyed. There's no economy to go back to. There are no schools, no hospitals, no roads. So Assad has is talking about stabilization, but he doesn't really know what that means. And I don't think he has any idea of how he's going to do it. Yeah, your point about Iran and Russia is really a good point because we tended to have these baskets, right? Oh, it's Iran and Russia together versus us, right? And what it gets at is where their interests converge, they work together. And where they diverge, Putin does not want to see Iran get too strong in a variety of ways. And so you're absolutely right. You know, and, and in the American policy debate, it's really important to keep making that point because we, we, we like to say these are the bad guys and these are the good guys. Yeah. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I, I wrote slightly tongue in cheek that, you know, Putin um, 
had sort of saved Obama's bacon on Syria by intervening because that meant Obama couldn't. Uh, and that kept Obama from doing a lot of stupid things that he might have otherwise winded up feeling pushed to do. And and the same is true with, with Trump now that, you know, Russia and others are filling up the space that it doesn't look obvious where the U.S. would fit in. And I think that, you know, sadly, it's or happily, it's good because I think uh, Putin's got more in his hands than he's ever going to figure out. Um, how many years till he pulls out going, gosh, I wish I'd never done that. Um, and, you know, if he's got more influence, um, again, with the air quotes in Syria, um, I'm happy to let him have it right. because I don't know what it's getting him except a lot of headaches. Uh, but, you know, what the United States can productively do or must do is still not even clear to me. It's it's so messy. Right. Um, and I think um, actually this is where Trump's ego is going to come in, right? I mean, if he thinks that it's in his um, prestigious interest to intervene, um, I think he will. I mean, his, his strikes basically did that. The strikes are of absolutely no strategic value. They did absolutely nothing to... Um, decrease the plight of the Syrian civilians that have been dying. And they certainly have not deterred Assad from using chemical weapons again. So um, I think this is where Trump's ego is going to come into play, too. So we'll see how Putin deals with that. All right. Time for the surprise question of the okay. day. Bruce, uh, we ask everybody who comes on the show, uh, tell us about uh, an early book or maybe it was a course in college or a, a mentor, a professor um, who turned you on to the field of foreign affairs. It's a great question. So I was an undergraduate at Cornell in the late 60s, early 70s, so during the Vietnam era, and my diplomatic history professor was Walter Lefebvre, who was a fabulous professor. I mean, first of all, he's one of the people that convinced me that I wanted to be a professor someday, and also the model that you could be a great scholar and also really care about teaching, which doesn't always happen. But the great Lefebvre, a measure of Lefebvre's impact was that um, he may be the only professor who has had two very different national security advisors, uh, Sandy Berger and Steve Hadley, who say the same thing I did, that they got turned on to international affairs by, by Walt Lefebvre, both a little bit before me at Cornell, but, but, but as undergraduates. And, and, that, and, and Walt was well to the left in his views, even more so than me, let alone Hadley. Um, but that's your, your point, is, is he inspired their interests you know, beyond just the issues, the immediate issues of the Vietnam War, and both went on to, to great careers, ideologically very different, and both stayed in touch with Walt Lefebvre throughout their careers. Well, that's a good company to be in, I guess. That's a good story. Good story. All right. Well, let's talk about your book. Um, that's why we're here. Uh, and let's, let, why don't we start with a couple of basics. Why did you write this book and, and what's the goal? So it's interesting, you know, so the academic side of me that goes through, um, you know, political science, international relations, all of that, you know, you all know that the canon in the discipline is... The individual level of analysis doesn't matter. It's all about institutions and structures and, you know, timeless concepts like balance power and national interest, all of which, you know, there's truth to that. And here inside the Beltway, it's like all about personalities, right? So you kind of wrestle with the two since I've spent a fair amount of time here as well. And I, I was looking for sort of a middle ground. And so I actually use a quote from Isaiah Berlin to start the book and say, it may be true that in many things that happen, you know, the, the difference between a particular leader is, is incremental. But at turning points in history, I mean, even look at the opposite side of my book. You look at Germany after World War I, no question they're going to be unstable. The particular form it took had a heck of a lot to do with the leader that emerged, Hitler. 
France after the French Revolution, a lot to do with Napoleon. And so I wanted to explore this on the side of statesmanship and diplomacy, not only with world leaders, but a lot of other individuals that have impact and to try to find out where that little bit of that middle ground was. Yeah, very interesting. So what, what makes a great leader? Right? How how do you decide who gets to be in the book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we've been joking that if we were really techie savvy, we'd have social media games going with the release of the book. You know, but we have been, I've been giving a lot of talks, not just to audiences like ours, people in the foreign policy world, the academic world, but to general interest audiences. Um, uh, in fact, um, you know, at, at a variety of bookstores and on C-SPAN, and you could see book book clubs wanting to read this and talk about who they'd put in the book. So. Um, in thinking about this, I actually, you know, moved out of our area and looked at the giant leadership literature in the business world and in others, and you know, tried to digest this and sort of identify a couple of factors. So one is there are three I'll, I'll mention now. One is what I call personal capital, right? The sense that the leader, some of in some cases, like a Nelson Mandela, it's moral capital, but the leader brings to their effort qualities that are not just a function of the position they occupy, whether it's a CEO or president or other officials, and that people see in them an authenticity, often courage, uh, that is part of their personal capital. Second is political skills, right? Personal capital is great, but you got to have the political skills. And some of the people that only went part of the way, uh, Gorbachev, for example, is in the book, who we in the West still admire and is a persona non grata at home because his political skills you know, in the end didn't serve him very, the lack of them hurt him. Uh, and and that gets to the how of, of statesmanship and leadership. And the third main quality is the vision, without getting too fancy about it, uh, but a sense that people have, even at a basic level, that you're telling them three things, you know, what's wrong with the present, why change, big change is needed, uh, what some of your core ideas are for change, and third, how they square with some of the values people hold that often makes them resistant to change. And so, you know, you can talk about it as a normative, analytic, and prescriptive element, but at a gut level, those are three things that for the range of leaders that are in my book, they all had in different ways. Um, so why do you include some NGOs and similar organizations under the rubric of statementship? So I talk about it in ways that that look at, you know, major roles that happen, breakthroughs that happen. And as I thought about different kinds of issues, two things. One, there are things that NGOs do that governments are either unable or unwilling to do. So, for example, I use in there the British lawyer named Peter Benenson, who founded Amnesty International in 1961. Not just about amnesty, but it really launched the contemporary human rights movement. In fact, within five or six years, he's kicked out of the organization because he's a little bit an odd duck and it fits my political skills notion. Um, I also have in there the Gates Foundation for their work on global public health. Um, and what I call philanthropy statesmanship, and not you know totally unvarnished. There's criticisms of them. The reality is they have the second largest budget in the world for global public health, next to the World Health Organization, and they have been innovative. and And both of those speak to what I think are trends that have been there before, but in the 21st century, uh, are going to become even more pronounced. Where NGOs can't change human rights policy; it's up to ultimately governments. But they can put things on the agenda. They can bring pressure. Uh, and so I tried to bring that out as well as dealing with the classical kinds of statesmanship of presidents, prime ministers, uh, you know, uh, secretary generals of the UN and the like. All right. I, I, you know, in reading the introduction, you, you hit this question early. So I want to make sure our listeners get a chance to, to get your take on it. So wh where do you stand on the, on the first question of statesmanship? Does history make the man or, or do men make 
history. Uh, love a couple examples to, to illustrate here. And then the bonus follow-up is, did writing the book actually change your mind uh, on this question? So I use a formulation there that I call the three Cs. You know, um, constraints, any leader, again, corporate leader, university president, president of a foundation, think tank, whatever, faces constraints. Uh, conducive conditions, you know, that help. And then this domain of choice, right? And and so that's where I tried to say, acknowledge that it's not just a single person. And, I, and it's also, even in these stories, there, there are partners, you know, uh, uh, and the like. Uh, the other formulation I use that gets to my true love of life, which is from baseball, uh, and, you know, one of the statistics used is in the Moneyball world, uh, and the first thing I do in the morning before I read the bad news of the world, I check my fantasy baseball team, right, you know, um, is this notion of, of what they call warp, wins against replacement players. So how many wins does this shortstop contribute to their team compared to every other shortstop in baseball? And I, I, I don't do it statistically, but I call it, you know, Sarl, statesman against replacement leader. And I try to argue, for example, with Gorbachev. I don't believe any other Soviet leader would have made the choices he did. Uh, they may have tried to, you know, clamp down on Eastern Europe. Might not have worked, but they would have made those choices. And so I make a case on the basis of the evidence, you know, in that respect. Um, so I come out with leaders like Gorbachev. I come out with um, uh, Kissinger and Zhou Enlai, very much in a partnership for the U.S.-China opening. Has it solved all our problems? Of course not. We talked about some at the beginning you know, of our podcast, but, you know, for almost, for almost a half a century, we have operated within a framework that has limited what one might have seen historically in a rising power and the like. Uh, and then I throw in people, so one of the other NGO type examples is the two Northern Irish women, uh, Mayreed Corrigan and Betty Williams, who when the troubles were at their height, you know, in the 1970s, uh, you know, just happenstance, you know, uh, Mayred Corrigan's sister and nieces and nephews have been killed by an IRA getaway car chased by the British. And she comes out of the hospital and she's interviewed by BBC. She's a secretary in a Guinness brewery. Um, and she makes a statement that what we would say today went viral. And it kicked off a movement, the Northern Ireland Women for Peace, that didn't solve the issues. That took George Mitchell and other Northern Ireland 22 years later. But the troubles never went to the height that they were. And it was a real turning point in that conflict. And so, you know, it helps with the notion that leaders aren't necessarily, you know, the perfect resume, right? They emerge uh, oftentimes from a variety of, of aspects. How did it change the way I think? I think it reinforced my sense about this balance, you know, that, 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 that individuals can really make a difference. We don't want to do our inside the beltway, oh, my God, you know, it's all about personality. But I think that it's important to find a way, and speaking now as an academic, to bring that individual level of analysis back in a little bit more than we do so that we don't overly disregard the role, the role that individuals play in history. You know, <clears throat> speaking of inside the beltway, here's an inside the beltway question, um, you know, that <laughs> we spent a lot of time noodling on here. It, it appears that many people in the United States uh, view Trump as a, as a transformational leader. Um, What's your take on that? So, at the, you know, I started the book before Trump. I would have written, you know, and, and he comes into the book in some places, but it's not a Trump book. 85% of it would have been the same had he not been elected. Um, but I do talk about this spate of literature that was going on for a long time, the end of power, the end of leadership, right? There's one book by a friend and colleague, we'd never have a great American president again, and another about the end of power in the boardroom. And, and I think one thing Trump demonstrates is the power of an individual. Right, uh, it goes back to a little bit of our Italy and other discussion. 
it's true in some respects in social psychology, it's easier to motivate people through fear and anxiety often than it is hope and aspiration. But there's no question that he has had enormous impact. So what does that tell us? It tells us that leaders matter, that they're not interchangeable, uh, and that he makes that point. Uh, and I talk at the, in the preface about, you know, and so does Putin, right? Uh, that um, that it, it made my sense of the importance of the book even even more important. So, you know, if we call if we if we measure great presidents in a um, you know kind of an antiseptic way, that do they have a lot of impact? He'd be up there, right? Uh, if we measure it in a different way, we might not put him there. <laughs> right. Yeah, good point there. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, it occurs to me that you know, in the, using your three C's notion that the 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 presidency, you know, is at the nexus of kind of maybe multi-directional trends in in that sense that um, maybe during the the Cold War the constraints were pretty heavy, and in foreign policy terms there maybe wasn't too much room to roam. After the Cold War, maybe there's a lot more room yeah. to roam. Uh, but on the other hand, and 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 then one other thing would be, you know, sort of what people worry about the rise of the imperial presidency. One thing that people around Cato talk a lot about is, hey, Trump is a good reminder that we need um, controls on the executive branch. Remember, one person shouldn't have too much power. Bad idea. So there, there there's a sort of a big literature on the president's increasing power. But then there's also in the American politics world the president's sort of shrinking ability to bargain with Congress on the other hand and, you know, all these sorts of things. So are American presidents sort of teed up to be more or less sort of uh, agentful uh, over the next couple of decades? Yeah. You know, we, we've wrestled with this. Like you said, we went from, you know, Watergate was the – went from the imperial presidency to the Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, imperial presidency. Then we had Reagan who emerged as a strong president. I remember, again, going back to my Cornell undergraduate days, Clinton Rossiter, who was a big American politics president at the time, and uh, his metaphor of coming out of FDR was the magnificent lion that you could allow to roam widely with some parameters on the reservation. And Rossiter basically got you know, his reputation uh, uh, you know, deeply damaged by Johnson and Nixon, right? Oh, is this what you're talking about, sir, right? So I, I think we need – we do need leadership who can motivate us. Uh, but I think that the constraints on the system, I mean, you know, it's not quite on subject, but my biggest concerns, well, I've got a lot of big concerns about Trump, but some of them are the core norms and institutions. And I, I really worry where we go, no matter what, I mean, if you were to be removed tomorrow, you know, what's happened to our, our, you know, respect for, you really need institutions. Uh, they have downsides, but they do set the you know the parameters of of of, of a society. Yeah, and that's and that's just the crux of of the the yin and the yang of great states. People is that one of their strengths is very often the ability to see a current norm and realize it's the wrong one for the times and push past it, push past where people think is comfortable and okay to eventually show people that the vision they have is correct. But when it's not correct. They have the same power to do this kind of moving. I mean, the way the Republican Party has been responding to Trump suggests that he's able to change the way they think about the world very decisively. That's right. And, and, and part of what I do in the book is not necessarily just focus on an individual, but a particular. So, you know, I've gotten some pushback. How can you have Henry Kissinger in the book, right, from people that talk about Vietnam or Pinochet or whatever? And my answer is he's in there for the U.S.-China opening, which was Kissinger at his best. And there are lessons to be learned from strengths and weaknesses. We have Aung San Suu Kyi in the book. And I'd started writing about her for the role she played, you know, uh, as the leader, incredible courage she played in Bur Burma's least 
you know, significant partial movement away from military. And then last summer, with everything going on with the Rohingya, I was like, you know, and I had a long talk with my editor, and he said, you know, part of the value we think of your book is you is you look at the strengths and weaknesses that individuals have. Lech Valenza was a great leader of the revolution and a terrible president. And so, you know, we call that chapter, you know, a cautionary tale. Uh, but we use it to bring out this notion that's, that certain kinds of qualities of leadership work really well for certain sets of objectives and may not work for the other. And, um, and it's the same with Kissinger. You know, the geopolitics of China was Kissinger at his best. Other things were not. And so it, it gets me out of the hero worship thing, you know, I think. And, you know, not everybody may agree, but that's the way I felt in writing it. I think that's a great point. Um, I think one of the strengths of your books is to show that uh, leaders are not just one issue, one dimensional. They might be great in one issue area and they might be leaders in, in one and they might show their sort of weaknesses in, in another. Um, but the question that I have for you is that um, does it matter that the team that the statement surrounds him, him or herself with and how influential would that team be? Extremely. And, and, and none of the chapters is about a single individual. I bring Reagan into the Gorbachev chapter, probably less than some, you know, um, more conservative scholars would, but more than a lot of liberals do. Um, and, you know, in terms of the team, it's extremely important. I have a chapter on Dag Hammarskjöld as the most successful UN Secretary General. And one of the cases is the Suez Crisis and the peacekeeping that was set up after that. And I was giving a talk with some Canadians the other day and they said, you know, what about Lester Pearson? And I said, he's in there. You know, he actually got the Nobel Prize in 1957 for the peacekeeping. Uh, and the two of them put it together, the first really successful UN peacekeeping force, you know, to help with the end of the Suez Crisis. Uh, so that was an example where nobody can do it on their own. Uh, and, you know, good leaders tend to pick good people. Uh, and so um, it's not a guarantee, but, but you know, it's not, just, it's not just the individual, but they're the crucial cog. A few years ago, I was um, interviewing uh, academics and other foreign policy experts about why the United States invaded Iraq. And I called a person who has uh, worked on a, a few different National Security Council staffs. And he said to me, I think what you're going to find as you talk to people is that the closer to the White House they work, the more likely the story is to be about the people involved and the decisions they make. And the farther away you go, the more likely systemic and other sort of forces are to be the things that they talk about. And I thought, well, that's, that's very interesting. But as we were preparing for this conversation, I thought to myself, but on the other hand, if from the from the role from the point of view of the public sitting out, you know, where my family is in Michigan, who you know very far outside the Beltway, let's just say, um, you know, they watch television, and television is full of highly personalized news. They don't hear anything about anarchy and the balance of power. They hear a lot about Trump and Putin and Kim Jong Un and so on. And I wonder, do you think that there's a danger in the public putting too much stock in individuals and the role of statesmanship? Uh, to a certain extent, yeah, because I think we we live in an age of celebrities, right? And it, you know, it's not just the internet age, but it's been true for a long time. Uh, and in some ways, I think it helps people get a handle on things. I don't need to know all the details of that issue. Let me just think about whether I kind of agree or think this is a good or a bad person. And so that's, I think that was true in ages that didn't have the technology we have. Um, and there is a susceptibility. It goes back to the concerns about anxiety of people's receptivity 
to demagogic leaders when they're feeling under a lot of stress. And so the comparisons to the 30s uh, with today, with a lot of these trends are, you know, they're not one-to-one, -one, but, they're, but they're reasons for concern. At the same time, it's the ability to mobilize people, right? And so it can cut either way. I think if you want to make profound change, you're not going to just do it by, uh, by you know, getting the Senate majority leader and, and the Senate minority leader to swing one set of votes. Uh, so it really depends what the goal is. And I think in some respects, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to make the bet that it can be used for positive um, effects while risking the negative, and then we all try to work against the negative. Uh, all right. Um, we talked about um, the importance of teams and partners. Um, can you give us a couple of examples from the book of of particularly successful partnerships where, you know, statesman X and statesman Y sort of were both required to get something important done? So I talked about Kissinger and John Lai, which was the the only one of the only chapters I'd make, you know, like a 50-50 partnership. Um, I'll give you another example that I think a lot of people have disagreed with, which was Rabin and Arafat. Um, you know, the title of the Rabin chapter is The Soldier is Peacemaker. And so he goes through this transition. In the late 80s, he's the minister of defense who's breaking knuckles, you know. And then he, you know, begins to see that Israel, that peace is not a concession of the Palestinians, that Israel, it doesn't guarantee Israel's security, but Israel will never be secure without peace. Uh, and when he comes to the White House for the Oslo signing, you know, Bill Clinton has to convince him to to shake hands and, and Rabin has this famous line, but no kisses, you know, no Middle Eastern <laughs> kisses, right? Um, and, um, and he began to work out a relationship with Arafat. And after Rabin was assassinated, um, so as part of the research, I, I had been working some with his daughter, Dahlia, who was a deputy minister of defense and a member of the Knesset. And I asked her one night, um, do you think that Oslo would have succeeded if your father had lived? And she said, look, I'm not going to go to an absolute yes on this. She said, but he, had be he, was, he was getting more and more frustrated with Arafat, but he believed they had a relationship that allowed them to work together, you know, in some ways manage Arafat. I don't want to take that too far, but to work together. And a lot of the evidence points in that direction, right? Uh, much of the terrorism that was happening was, um, to a great extent, Arafat's inability, not just unwillingness to crack down on Hamas and Islamic Jihad. If you look at the data, terrorism went up right after Oslo on both sides, which, you know, the spoiler theory of international relations, of course, people want. And it stays up in 94. By 95, it's actually going down, right? Uh, and so I think that uh, – and it wasn't a partnership that Perez could continue, let alone Netanyahu, right? Netanyahu, I don't think, wanted to and Perez wasn't capable of it. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting one. I don't make it – it's not Rabin and Arafat, but it's, you know, is it is a 50-50 um, De Klerk and Mandela, you know, some some colleagues have told me that I underestimate De Klerk's role, that he should be there as a 50-50. I'm not as convinced. Uh, but, but I think that there was a partnership. There was no guarantee that Mandela, after 27 years in prison, would go for reconciliation, not retribution. Uh, so none of these stories. Lech Valenza had Pope John Paul, who pulled him in a couple times, right? Uh, as well as you know a whole variety of other of other factors. Um, and so it's never a single individual, but you know I try to make the individual the focus for what the you know crucial the statesmanship moneyball part is that that was indispensable. 
All right, let's bring it home. In in the epilogue, you talk a little bit about the next generation of peacemakers. Um, what kind of changes uh, do you see out in the world that are going to affect wh who those people might be moving forward? A couple of things. I think so. One is, um, you know, people often say, well, how can you do any of this with 24-7? And you know, you look at the communication technology problems, they were there in every other era, a little bit like we were talking about before. Um, so I'm not totally, I, I feel like we've, we've, we've fallen into some woe is usism too much on that. I mean, it's a factor, but it doesn't make it totally different. So you're going to have to manage that and figure out a way to make it work for you. Um, I think as a couple broad trends, one, I do think that the role of, of NGOs and social movements is going to increase for breakthroughs that make it possible for government and international institutional leaders uh, to make a difference. You know, in the Myanmar case, Human Rights Watch had the technology to be the first to identify what was happening in the Rohingya before any government of the UN. So I think we're going to see more of that. I think this question of philanthropy statesmanship. At the end of the day, I am a state-centric person. I think that, you know, that ultimately it's up to states to make the decisions. Um, I think we'll see the emergence of more leaders from the non-West. There are a few in the book, uh, but the nature of 20th century statesmanship was really one that was dominated by, by the West. Uh, I think we'll see the emergence of more women leaders. Uh, I think, you know, we've now seen, what, three women secretaries of state in the last 20 some odd years and we had zero before. You know, the two EU foreign ministers have been women. Uh, so some of those changes I think, I think will happen. Uh, ultimately, we really need to see it from the leaders of the major powers and the key international institutions. But these are part of the mix, both on their own and in ways that can make more possible the conducive conditions for the other types of leaders. That's a fantastic place to put an end on it. Bruce, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld, and to everyone at home listening. Uh, you can always find us on Twitter to continue the conversation at CatoFP. I look forward to talking to you next time.